Where are we? I don't know. This doesn't look like a safe harbor of Yacht Rock. All of my instruments are off, and by that, I mean like a compass, not like I a... thought you meant your actual instruments. No. This is spooky. Yeah. How did we end up here? Uh, I think flying over the Bermuda Triangle may have been the problem. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. The Bermuda Triangle, which we are using as a vehicle to debut a new feature yeah. on the podcast. Yeah. So this is the Yacht Rock Podcast out of the main. You are found the right place. However, yeah. this week... And maybe weeks into the future, we're going to explore something completely off the map. So far off the map that we get lost in the Bermuda Triangle, and you never know where we're going to end up. So the Bermuda Triangle, if you recall, that was one of those things that fascinated people back in the 70s. Uh, there were all those shows like In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy that were they were looking for, what, Loch Ness Monster, the uh, Abominable Snowman. Um, yeah, Sasquatch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I remember there was one about the Bermuda Triangle. There are all, all those stories going around about planes being lost, Navy ships going down and them not being able to find the wreckage, and um, stories of Christopher Columbus saying that he, uh, when he was traveling through there, he saw a giant like flame in the sky, and weeks later, a light appeared on the horizon, and just all kinds of weirdness. Could that have been a firekeeper? Somebody trying to keep the fire? Oh, early firekeeping. Oh, talk about proto proto. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, so our listeners, dear listeners, you may feel like you've kind of gone through the Bermuda Triangle, and you're trying to figure out where we are, because we're totally changing the subject today. Yes. Although, we're staying within what made this podcast uh, actually be something that we would enjoy talking about which is a similar love for similar styles of music, all for the same reasons, um, but it's not Yacht Rock for just a week. Do you want to reveal what today's topic is? Yes. it's a, It certainly falls under, ironically or strangely, it falls under West Coast music, even though it's about as far from the West Coast as it could possibly be and still be in the continental contiguous United States, because we're going to look at the band and the debut album, Boston. Oh, yeah. So we're at least sticking in the time frame, too. Sticking in the time frame. And there's no question that this album is heavily influenced by West Coast music, certainly not Yacht Rock. But if you love that era, you love fine music, you love complex music, but you also like it to be full of hooks and accessible and great harmonies and all of those things then you probably are a big fan of this record as well. We even referenced Boston in our episode, was it last week or the week before, when we talked about... The harmonies. Yeah, the harmonies. And people actually appreciated the fact that we were bringing up bands and artists that we would not typically bring up, so we kind of felt like that gave us at least enough leeway, if not encouragement, to do something a little bit different from time to time. So we figured we'd plot a course through the uh, Bermuda Triangle and just see what happens, so we may do it again. Absolutely. And this is also a story that we've referenced, I think, on at least one occasion, if not more. And if you're not familiar with the story of how the band Boston came to be, I think you'll be in for a treat. Because if you're like the average music listener and you think of the band Boston, you think of just a band that got discovered someday and you know paid their dues and eventually got signed to a record deal and away they went. Which is not exactly, or not at all, really, how Boston came to be. No, and if you look around on the internet, there are very differing stories. There's a lot of inconsistencies from one story to another that you hear. I do remember um, at one point, Tom Scholz wrote a very extensive sort of manifesto about this is actually what happened, this is how it happened, and he was kind of putting some of the false stories to rest or rumors or all of those things. 
I went looking for that, and it lived on the Boston website. But the Boston website's entirely changed now. That is all gone. So we're back to trying to sift through what's on Wikipedia, what's been reported in Rolling Stone, you know, uh, and basically what I can remember from reading the Tom Scholes version. Yeah, and I did the same thing. And if you read through the sort of history, it, they've cobbled it together through the individual band members' bios, so there, it doesn't all sync up. It's not chronological, so it's kind of confusing. Even you know the parts about Tom Scholes and Brad Delp, but so explain who Tom Scholes is for people who don't even know what you're talking about. Oh boy, Tom Scholes is definitely the leader of Boston. He's nearly plays every instrument. Um, he is a MIT technology graduate genius. Uh, he he wrote all of their tunes. He produced all their tunes. As I said, he played nearly every part. Uh, but that only goes into part of it because he was so technologically gifted in the ability to rewire or reimagine how a piece of electronic gear should work, uh, even as simple as switching out, changing tubes, changing capacitors, changing, you know, being able to look at one of those uh, diagrams, how everything works, and say, well, if I did this, 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 just, you know, mad scientist kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So he, despite the gear that he, quote, used, all of it was so heavily modded that it barely resembled the original that it was, whether it was his Marshall head amp or the recording device or the mixers that they used. Everything got modded by Tom Schultz. Yeah. Something of a mad scientist. He was the, you know, he... We, we Now we have all these amplifier simulators, whether they be hardware pieces, like uh, there was a thing that came out that was called the pod that was an amp thing that was very popular, and that led to uh, software emulations of guitar amps. And it's really the norm that you would use in a recording now, a software modeling of an amp. Even if you record a real amp, you might split the signal so that you have a direct recording right out of the guitar so you can use a software amp later. That all came from the concept of Tom Scholl's way back in the 80s when he developed a thing called the Rockman. That was probably the first real true amp replacement device. I had one of those two. I had yeah. the Tom Scholl's Rockman. I plugged my guitar in, and I did sound like him. I couldn't yeah. play like him, but no. my tone sounded automatically like that. It was crazy. Yeah. Well, walk us through the lore, if you don't mind, because you were a bigger fan, certainly, than I was, and you, whatever you recall from the manifesto itself that corrected some of the lore, but the lore goes like this in terms of how the first album came to be. Okay. I'm going to quickly set the stage for just... People know what a big album this was, so I'm not going to hit all the highlights in terms of success, but it says it took only three weeks to go gold. So wow. that's 500,000 copies in three weeks. And then only three months later, or by a total of three months, it was already platinum. So it was over a million sold in just a couple of months. Wow. Um, it was... You might be getting to this, but just to set more stage... More Than a Feeling was the initial single, right? Correct. And so it's yep. probably living off the excitement of that tune, which is awesome. It would have to be at that point, yep. right, in the first few weeks. Uh, Fastest-selling debut album for any American group. Wow. And um, this is what I found also interesting. It, over time, it continued to sell. Um, by 10 years, it had sold $9 million. Jeez. Eventually, by 2003, it had sold 17 million. So now it's over 20 million worldwide, and it's considered the second best-selling debut album of all time in the United States. Do you have any guess 
what the number one selling debut album of all time for an American band was? It's a, it's a band, it's not like a solo artist? Correct. Oh, debut, debut. Uh, is it the Eagles? No. Oh. Guns N' Roses. Oh, really? Appetite for Destruction, yeah. Okay, interesting. So, we're talking big, big, big time. We're talking a legendary album. Um, I, I saw a thing that said that, and, and I never thought of this, I'd never really put this together, but I think it serves to work with what we're talking about today, how... How can we be talking about this on a Yacht Rock podcast or a West Coast We already podcast? explained all that. Right. The Bermuda Triangle, yada, yada. But, but this, yeah, somebody else uh, is going to give oh, us okay, a good, little good. bit of assistance. So it says, uh, Boston has been described as a pivot in the transition of mainstream American rock from bluesy-based proto-metal to power pop, combining some of the ebullience of rock's early days with the precision and technology yada yada right mm-hmm. that would mark rock record productions going forward yes so they are that breaking point where rock stopped being bluesy rock and started becoming the polished power pop and i think that's uh, mm-hmm. interesting well incidentally did, did the album come out in 1976 did you yeah. Say, yeah yeah so that is the marker too of when yacht rock started yeah supposedly all right so the story about it um they were sort of being swallowed up by disco. I mean, Tom was um, sending out demo after demo, making demos. Started in the early seventies. Uh, he actually, you know, foreplay beginning of long time foreplay long time. Yep. Says he actually wrote that back in nineteen sixty nine. Had the concept for that. Wow. So he'd been at this for a while, but sending out demos um, to any record label that would listen, and none would. Right. He was basically rejected everywhere he went, and. Not just rejected, but rejected pretty vociferously. Either he got was told one of two things. Either, man, nobody wants rock and roll anymore <laughs> because they all wanted disco. Yep. Or that, okay, it's rock and roll, but it doesn't really offer anything new, which is kind of funny coming uh, on the heels of what I just said about <laughs> right, being yeah. a pivot record. It's innovative, but yeah. nobody wants it because it's yeah. nothing new. Even the guy that supposedly lays claim to be the one that signed uh, Boston. Tom Schultz likes to point out that, uh, yeah, he pretty much rejected us with in very insulting terms, mm, you know, okay. basically, you know, get lost, boy, you bother me. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, but now he wants credit for it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The most unique thing about it is, of course, that it was recorded nearly entirely in the basement of an apartment building. Mm-hmm. He uh, lived in an apartment building, I, I think... As I recall, somebody like an aunt or somebody owned it. Somehow he had access where he could utilize the basement, um, which had to be kind of nasty when you think about it. But um, So there's like the water heater and the furnace and all that down there. And he's working around this stuff, building partitions wherever he could. He said he had a tiny booth that was barely big enough to fit the drum kit in. All the walls were carpeted. Hmm, cool. Shag carpet on all the walls. Nice, that's groovy. the way. That's the way you did drum booths back then. You wanted dead. Yeah, you know. Um, and he would work down there. He packed in a. Uh, I guess originally it was probably a four and eight track tape machine, but eventually got a twelve track Scully deck, which was an early multi track thing, one inch tape, twelve tracks, and that whole record, um, other than overdubs that they did later, was done on a twelve track deck. Wow. 
Now, for clarity's sake, so, so I know foreplay, I think, was reco- recorded a little bit earlier than the other stuff. Mm-hmm. And maybe he had uh, his co-writer play drums on that or something. But who who's, is he doing all the tracks, including the vocals at this point, the demo point? That's where the mystery is. So really, when they were demoing it, it was Tom Scholz, drummer Jim Mesdea, mm-hmm. and Brad Delp, the singer. And they were doing all the demos. Tom was playing all the parts except for the drums. And then, of course, Delp was doing all the vocals. Um, the mystery begins that other players that we know are members, quote, of the band. You got Sib, who was uh, credited as a drummer. You got Fran Sheehan, who was credited as a bass player. And Barry Goudreau, credited as an additional guitar player. The waters are murky as to what they actually played, if anything, on the record. Some places credit them as playing a few things. Tom has been saying, well, no, I pretty much played everything except for a couple of parts on the last tune. Let me take you home tonight. Um, The drums is the biggest mystery because they, on the record, they credit Sib as playing drums, but Jim Mesdea playing rock and roll band. Rock and roll band, okay. But when you read the the Tom Scholz manifesto, as I called it, he said that the final tracks that actually made it to mastering were from the original demos. They were added to later and gussied up later, but they were sourced from the original demos. So it's actually Jim on all of the drum parts. This this is where you find different stories depending on where you read. Okay. Well, fast forward, unless we can't fast forward, um, to they eventually do get signed and discovered, and now they've got a deal. And it's not as though they weren't a band, because they did play these songs live Live, and support this in order to, both before they were signed and after, because they went out and played bars and hoped that A&R people would come. And these, you know, it was a band. They did work these songs up with these guys playing them. But when it came time to record, Tom being um, beyond what what goes beyond a perfectionist? I don't know what the word absolute is. Absolute perfectionist. Okay, absolute perfectionist. <laughs> Good. Um, I, I couldn't... Uh, th- this is the reason why I think he played everything other than the drums, because he's the only one that would sit down there. He would be down there alone in this basement, probably using a foot switch to start and stop the tape deck and playing all the parts over and over and over again until he got them absolutely perfect, which is why he legendarily takes so long to record a record. But the other guys were involved to some degree in playing these songs live and developing them. Yes. So they were, it kind of leads to the sort of the ruse that went on because once they got signed, the record label wanted them, you know, they, you tell someone that it's a demo, regardless of how good it sounds, as soon as you tell them it's a demo, they automatically think that it's probably not done or it's not good enough. So we, what do we do? We all we take it out to a real studio and we're going to really polish it. We're going to go out to L.A. Out in L.A. Well, that sounds minorly yachty. But going back to what I said, Tom modded all his gear. So his EQs, his wah-wah pedal, his mixer, his tape deck, all of those things had modifications done to them. And he knew that even if he went out to L.A. and played all the parts right, it still wasn't going to sound the same because a lot of the mojo was in the way he modded the gear to get these specific sounds. And maybe a little bit was that he had situations that he had to um, work around being in that basement because he invented this thing 
that guitarists use to this day called the power silk. And there's a lot of different versions of it, but the most basic explanation of it is, is that it sort of fools the guitar amp into thinking that it's pumping out more power than it really is. Hmm. So it, it allows you to crank up the input and the output of your amplifier head before it goes to the speaker. So you're able to crank and, and get like the tube saturation and the distortion out of both the input and the output stages. But if you were to do that in a basement with a real speaker in front of it, it would be so loud that either you wouldn't be able to record it well in there or you'd have neighbors complaining, right? right. So he came up with this way of fooling his amp at the output stage of thinking that it's playing really loud, but this power soak thing would reduce the amount of power actually going to the speaker. So you get all of the amp characteristics of cranking the amp without all that volume coming out of the speakers. That's kind of the dumbed down version of what it is. Again, so if he goes out to LA, they're not going to be using his power soak. He was using that by necessity, but that became part of the sound. For sure. Well, so then the label tells them, basically, we're signing the act, but we need, A, we need a band, B, we're booking you a session in L.A., right? right? And we're going to assign you a producer by the name of John Boylan. Is that right? Yeah. Where, where have we heard that name before? <laughs> exactly. Well, <laughs> right. And so he agrees to it, but he doesn't really agree to it. Right. So John Boylan is the brother of Terrence Boylan. He is the one that way, way back when, when we talked about the Dane Donahue album, Dane told us about how Terrence became a little bit less than focused on making the album because he was making his own album. Mm -hmm. And his, his brother, John, this same John Boylan we're talking about here, came in to sort of take over and steady the wheel on Dane Donahue's project. Well, John Boylan became a big time producer and I think we even talked about it back then, in the West Coast, but much more in the rock side of things. Yep. So John Boylan was an established guy. He was somebody that the label executives trusted. They didn't necessarily have to check up on him and micromanage what he was doing. So they thought. <laughs> well, so he understood and agreed with Tom with this idea that, look, if I go to L.A. and try to record this, it is not going to be the same. That What I want to do here is be given the time, be given the budget uh, to really go into my studio in the basement of this apartment building and fine-tune this thing. So they developed this ruse where they took, going back to the band members, they mm -hmm. took the band members out to L.A. and did some sort of mock studio sessions or something. I don't, it's unclear exactly what they did, but the label got the impression that recording sessions were happening out in L.A. and all was going well. Meanwhile, Tom's back in Boston in his basement working up the actual tunes. All the rest of the stuff was fake, with the exception of one song. That's the, the one they did it in the session, I think, wasn't yeah. it? Yes. Yeah. Which we will get to. We will get to that. That's a Bermuda um, Triangle within a Bermuda Triangle. Wow. Oh. I'm losing track now. <laughs> How many Bermuda Triangles are we in? Uh, I don't know. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, then you had to do some overdubs well, and they, some final did, mixing yeah. and stuff. So <laughs> they brought a mobile 24 track, like in a truck or something, out to 
where Tom Scholl's apartment building was so they could run long lines out of the basement from that tape deck, like out of basement window to this 24-track machine in a truck outside <laughs> so they could record the 12 tracks that he had done and that would give them 12 tracks then left that were empty that they could do vocals on. So they actually did do the Brad Delp final vocals out in L.A. Out in L.A., yep. And just, we'll get to that specifically, but Brad Delp is pretty much every voice in those lush harmonies. Yeah, yeah. I got to tell you a quick little story. This is a complete aside. Another Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> this goes back to my days when I was at Berkeley College of Music. So when you're in the production field at Berkeley College of Music, your um, your semester starts off where you pick a you're, you're if you're going to do a, your production project, you you are the producer. You have to go out and you have to find the song. You have to find an engineer. You have to then select the musicians, and you have to actually go to the studio wing where all the recording studios are. Go to the office there. Book your time. You have to actually fill out a proposal sheet that would go like to a label executive and say, "Here's what I intend to do. Here's the type of song. Here's what we expect it to sound like. These are the musicians. This is what it's going to cost. You know, you had to do the union." musician paperwork, all that stuff. Sounds like a lot of fun. I know. Then you would actually go and you would do your record session and your mix session. And when you're at the end of the semester, instead of turning in a term paper, you're turning in a cassette of your final mix of your song. That is your term paper, Mm. right? So you turn those in and then we uh, basically do a listening party where... Each person takes a a turn bringing their song up to the front of the class and popping in the cassette player and playing it for the class. And they've already probably been graded on it, but one kid brings his up, pops it in, and it's like, oh, my God, dude, you're kidding me. He's got Brad Delp on vocals. <laughs> like, come on. Oh, my. That's, that's unfair. It's like cheating, yeah. yeah. It's like having the answer key. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, oh. back to wherever we were. Well, so they've ended up. Getting the Delp vocals, they ended up sending it to the studio in L.A., I think, to, to do the mixing and the mastering, right? And so that's where it's actually finished, or is that wrong? I think that's where it's finished. That, yeah. That's what my gathering is. Yeah. And it's submitted to the label, and the label has no idea that any of that transpired, and they release the record and never find out probably till years later. Yeah, probably when uh, there, there was probably... Now you're reminding me of something. It seems to me... That part of when Tom Scholz put that manifesto out, he was finally beyond some sort of statute of contractual agreement with the label where he was able to tell this story, which Mm -hmm. whether he was um, under a, you know, non-disclosure or something like that. But that was part of it, that they had to sort of keep that a secret, I guess, once they found out. I mean, it would become somewhat embarrassing, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, the finished product, as you referenced earlier, just goes on to be this huge smashing success. The thing about this album that I even knew back when I was 76, right? Six years old. Mm -hmm. Um, I could tell it sounded, there was something that sounded different about this than the other rock and roll I was listening to. And it's all that stuff that you just said in terms of how we put it together. The guitar tones are different. The drums are super dead, which was kind of common back then. But like... Now, I hear all those sounds now, and now I don't think the drums sound dead. I think they sound like exactly how they were supposed, supposed to be. They're supposed to. Yeah, the guitars are like, yeah. that is the Tom Scholl's sound, and it's like, oh, so good. And then Brad Delp on top of it. One thing that we talked about a while back um, had to do with 
when I made a comment about um, bass players and guitar players would be are unhappy when they hear how much <laughs> bottom end is rolled out of their sound. This is an album that's a good example because if you really pay attention, it, it shows how much Scholes really understood not only about music, but also about the way that the mix was going to turn out. Because if you notice as we go along in any of these, he's, his bass playing is very busy. It's what we call that busy 70s bass, where it's kind of all over the place and, and um, in a very artistic way, a very melodic way. It's great. It's not busy annoying. It's busy because it's shaping the song. But, but we, I always say, real quick, I always say that's the bass player stylings of a guitar player. It is. They think like a guitar player and they play bass that way. It is. Yep. But you notice in the guitar parts, A, there is that Boston sound, which is a very mid-rangey sound. Um, he has a trick that he does to get that mid-rangey sound, but it doesn't have all that woofing down in the low end. Mm-hmm. And even the, the rhythm parts, if you notice in the rhythm parts of the guitars, they don't play a lot of stuff down in the low register. He is intentionally clearing out that space to let the bass be busy down there. You could tell there was a decided yeah. bass is down here, guitars are in the middle, and vocals are up top. The vocals are definitely up top. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you ever saw Rick Beato. He covers this album all the time because he loves it. Oh, but yeah. He was talking through just the overall tone of the album and how deep and warm this album is Mm -hmm. and then he said you don't get that same sound in the next record or with the record after that which i always thought god they all sound the same to me (laughs) but if you put them back to back there is a decidedly different low end and depth and warmth that comes out in this record that is amazing and the other two just don't compare Hmm. do that all right have you ever done that by the way yeah i actually listened to the first two Talked about him yesterday. Um, the, the Until second he pointed one, out, that's all I could hear after he pointed it out. Yeah, the second one is smoother. It's softer. It's poppier. Um, I, I go against the grain, believe it or not. I still like the second one better. And I know there's only a handful of us that say that from a production standpoint, or just songs I, and everything. For some reason, it's just stayed with me. It's gotten. It's still fresh with me. It maybe is a, a case of. The first one was overplayed more. I don't know, but yeah. I still go back to that second one, and I'm enamored with mm. it. I don't Maybe know. you'll convert me at some point. Um, a couple other just overall impressions, and then uh, we can get into track by track, whatever you have. But the um, what's interesting is that if I listen to it today now on a digital, you know, platform, and I've got enhanced speakers that I, you know. It takes on a whole new tone today than it did that when we were listening to it on a record player out True. of an eight-inch speaker that wasn't nearly as good as what we have today. True. And you get all the depth and stuff that went into the first... I don't think I... That's the point is, I don't think I appreciated how good the recording quality was until I could hear it as close to its purest form as possible. And I never did that back then. It was FM radio, which is super compressed, you know, transistor one speaker radios and crap like that. And it's amazing. Again, going back to the basement thing, it's just unbelievable. You wouldn't think of that as being, you think you'd be making a lo-fi record down there, intentionally lo-fi. Yeah, because you, like, you had to, and yeah. you're like, well, I'm going right. to show you that I did it right. on purpose. Right? Yeah. That's Wilco's trick. Yeah. All right. And then my last thing, just on the album in general, is that I don't know where you stand on it, but if the reason I don't think I've moved on to the second album being my favorite yet it's because I'm purposely not playing this album because I'm afraid I'm going to get sick of it. <laughs> I have so many albums like that. I don't listen to it because I'm afraid I'll get tired of it. Because this feels like a greatest hits to me. It's like every Did every song... Every re- song I think has gotten airplay regularly on like rock radio for sure. It, it went back, it was in an era too where AOR still existed so they would right. play, you know, long time. Yep. 
which they would never do nowadays. No. But it feels like a greatest hit. So we're going to go through these tunes. And you're going to be like, these are all on the same record? Yeah, yeah. And the problem with Boston is it's not like I could go on to the six other albums and kind of diversify my experience. There's very little of it. All right. Anything else you want to talk to just in general? No, about it'll the come up as we go. So. so we always like to talk about, you know, the entrance of the album. I just dig the way this song. The fade-in? The fade-in. I'm always in. weird about the fade-in, you know? Yeah. I always wondered if rock and roll bands should have been the starter of the album. Now, obviously, this ended up being the, you know, the song that put them on the map. But yeah, exactly. But there's something. There, it's a brave choice. To it say, is. I'm going to fade in, and it's all, it's going to start like a ballad. But this is going to be a rock album. And it's acoustic guitar, yeah. Acoustic Which guitar. the Beato thing points out. You're not just hearing acoustic guitar. You think you are. Right. But there's that clean guitar buried in the middle that is what glues it all together. And you got to go back and watch the Rick Beato thing. We're not going to dig into all of that, but. And if you don't know who Rick Beato is, he's got a YouTube channel, and he does this recurring feature that's what makes this song great, and he did one on More Than a Feeling, and I think it's right. This was part of the ruse, though, that um, John Boylan arranged um, for uh, them to buy a a very expensive Taylor acoustic guitar, you know, yeah, that so made it look like they were doing something, but Scholl's... Didn't use it. He was he was back in Boston using his cheapy like hundred dollar Yamaha guitar or something, <laughs> and they're God. spending all this money on an acoustic. But <laughs> that thing sounds great. I know. Oh. But the other thing I love about the song, aside from everything else that's already been said about it throughout the years, is in terms of yacht rock, we get our first taste of wire choir in the very first tune. Man, he used it. He used it differently because he almost used it like um, string parts a lot of times, mm. and is like underneath the the verses later on. Or I don't know. It's hard to hard to describe what he does because his stuff is almost classical the way it takes stuff on that you get um, counter lines going. You get something where he will get a establish a melody and then when it comes back around for a repeat he adds the harmony on top of it and now the whole thing is like you're now you're listening to the top note which is the harmony becomes the melody it's just it's it's so classical in nature well can we maybe uh, use that as a segue to get into peace of mind and we can show exactly what you're talking about yeah the solo section right so in the middle there's this solo section that sets up okay here this is gonna be a wire choir solo and give a little of that And then at the end, this is where I'm talking about. It gets more complex and more layers. And this is going to take us through to the fade out. But notice how this uh, low guitar line still cuts through the mix because of all the mid-range that he uses, which I can explain. But it's a very mid-rangey sound that he uses um, so he doesn't get all of that sort of fluffiness down in the low end. So it cuts through. And then when they add... The harmony on top, they push it up in the mix where it's louder than the low melody. So it becomes the melody, and it's a whole new melody. So that's the tune. Again, to me, that sounds like another hit. I don't know where that charted, but we're two songs in, two hits. Yep. (laughs) But Foreplay comes along. That's a song that he's been working on since 1960-something, right? Yeah, Yeah. 69. And uh, this is an album, what I love, this is why we created a podcast about this time frame of music. 
Yacht Rock, obviously, but they did things back then that they will never do now or going forward in terms of writing a song. First of all, writing a record in, in as a cohesive project, but also having the artistic desire to create a piece that is never going to see light of day on the radio. And that's what this yeah. foreplay tune is. Yeah, I mean, it's like top class progressive rock. The 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 intro, which is this foreplay thing, and I swear you hear that big organ. How how does he do that in the basement? It sounds like a church organ, man. <laughs> now this is where I turn back to you for the note. I thought I read somewhere that this early drum. This is like one of the early demos that featured. Is it which drummer is this? Is this <laughs> that's the mystery? And can he can Scholes play drums? Is it possible he ever laid any of this down? Um, he tried to play drums later on. It, no, he could not have played that. <laughs> Can you do the halftime shuffle? Sorry. All right. Um, but just amazing. So yeah, yeah. Um, do you remember when we used to play this song? Because it would always go right into the next tune, Long Time, right? And Trying had, to figure out where the blotting blotting is. Yeah, so there's a drum fill that is the transition between foreplay and long time. And let's play this for the listeners. And they got to play along. <laughs> and the, the contest winner is the person who can blotting blotting right on exactly when it comes. All right, here you go. Wait for it. Yeah. Did you get it? Yeah. Did you get it? Nope. I think I've gotten that right once in my life. <laughs> Good. It's one more than me. And it was the first time you and your friend Tom presented it to me. They're like, see if you can nail this thing. And somehow <laughs> I did, and I've never been able to do it then. I was like now you're 14 thinking years it. old. Yeah. Uh, All right. But this is, a, this is an amazing t- tune, too, this long times, this next tune. My favorite part of this song is, I think Beato's talked about this, so I'm not breaking any news, but there's a recurring little trick that they did with their rhythm guitar riffs. Right. Is that early on, they would play this cool rhythm with an acoustic, and you hear that here. And then later on in the song, they would come back to it, but now they got the crunchy, distorted electric guitar. Yes, and that's where he would use an accentuated mid-range so probably even like a wah-wah pedal half open where you're not moving it you just set it halfway open so you get that real spike in it what happens when you when you put like a extreme boost in your mids prior to the distortion the distortion will sort of smooth it out but it gives a certain amount of growl or bark to the sound you know so that that's what you're hearing there. That's why it has sort of a, a almost a razor's edge to it. It's yeah. because he's hitting that as much mid range as he can get before the distortion stage. But the and I love the counterpart to the acoustic being very soft and yep. nice and groovy. Uh, it's almost got a little bit of funkiness to it the way he's playing it on the acoustic, and then it just rips your face. Yeah, it's off com- later. when it comes in on the electric on the last time, it's completely unexpected the first time you hear it. My note on uh, other note on this tune is the guitar solo. Will melt your face. So maybe he couldn't play drums. <laughs> you want to hear Tom Schultz play guitar? All right. Last thing, yeah. too, before we move on, because I'm going to let you take Rock and Roll Band, which is the next tune. Um, is this the end of the side? Do yeah. you remember? Okay, so this is the end of the side. This My note is not on that, but just if you're playing along, this is the end of side A. Um, 
I just have Brad Delp at his finest. So Brad Delp, like you said earlier, he's got the high part, right? The bass, it's got the low part, and the guitars are in the middle. Yeah. But maybe find a section just to give Delp his due praise, because this dude, I feel like he could sing really high, really powerfully, without it ever sounding gimmicky like a Getty Lee might, right. or nasally like a Robert Plant might. It's just perfection. Well, I'm taking my time, just moving on. I, I don't think in this style of rock and roll there's a better singer ever. Yeah. Um, because it's not just the the vocal work. It's the harmonies and it's the, the I, I don't know, he just... It's just amazing. <laughs> I, can't, I can't put it into words. It's so good. It, there's just so many adjectives I can't pick one. It's funny because like, this is going to double entendre here. Maybe that you have a different sound effect for that. But he raises the bar. People like him were raising the bar. Remember we talked about how 70s and 80s, it became a contest to see who could sing higher. Yeah. And then eventually no one could get higher probably than a guy like this. Yeah. So then the contest became, all right, who could sing lower? And then the 90s you had Pearl Jam and everyone else. <laughs> wait, oh, oh, Lord. The pendulum was always swinging, man. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, what do you know about rock and roll band? Well, rock and roll band sounds like it's telling the story of the band and how they were discovered and all that stuff, which is not. This is purely fictional. This is not how it happened. But maybe this is how they imagined that it should have gone down. Well, and I wondered, I wanted to get your take on that. Is like, is he telling a fictional story that he wants people to believe because... The mm-hmm. truth is something very not this. It's not like paying your dues in the bars yeah. and some guy shows up in his Cadillac. And, right. But you I don't, don't know. I don't, you, know, don't know. It's I all don't conjecture. Know no. Yeah. No. You do know it's a rocker, though, and you would have opened the record with it, apparently. Yeah, because it starts strong and because it tells the story. It seems like a good opener. But they did put side two, so that's a good place for it, too. Yep. Good tune. Good tune. And then comes Smoking. Yes, so, the burnout song. Oh, it's, <laughs> oh it, the song smokes, though. It does. This is the song I told my son when he was expressing an interest in drums. You know, most uh, boomers and Gen Xers would tell their kid, go learn Tom Sawyer by it. Right. And right. I said, no, go learn Smoking because it's got, you have to hold down this awesome groove. It's a shuffle, you know. Stay in the pocket. It's a shuffle. <laughs> I call it a swing. No, okay. it is. It's It's got that. Yeah. But he, it's. Very tight. Yeah. But when he needs to flourish, he's got these little turnarounds that you almost can't even hear everything that's going on. So pay attention when they do this little turnaround thing here. That smokes, man. Yeah, smoking. Very smoking. (laughs) Speaking of smoking, there's smogan, mogan, smogan in there. What's going on here? Smogan. <laughs> Some organ? Some organ. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the solo, the organ solo, uh, obviously travels through a whole bunch of different fields. But, man, when it starts out, l- try not to pay attention to the organ, but listen to the subtle, uh, very finessed upper register guitar rhythm parts that are happening there. This is, to me, the candy of this section. I've never noticed that before. You're right. Yeah, once you hear it, you can't unhear it. Oh, good. 
Well, this I love this section. This goes back to this being an album-oriented rock band is yep. this feels like an extended like live show section where they would kind of give everyone a chance to shine and it's, yeah. just, it's just jamming a little bit of progressive rock in there a little bit just because it goes through multiple sort of feels in the organ solo and organ solo was a big thing in prog rock so, oh yeah. yeah yeah um but again the bass line is killer in there it's not it's so funny because it's not how i would ever play or think about bass but i love the way he does it and where does he get that sound on that organ i swear <laughs> It's a sample. You just plug it into the computer. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, it sounds like a pipe organ, right? Going back, it does. To, in places. Is it a pipe organ? Well, he says it, it, he said he had a B three with a Leslie, and that's all he had. Really? And he had to move the drum kit out of the padded room so that he could put the Leslie speaker and mic that up. <laughs> so it's a Damn. Leslie speaker inside a carpeted room. Yeah, I, I don't know how you get that sound out of that. So my my challenge to drummers, if you haven't already, is to go learn spoken. Note for note. Like, yeah. no faking it. Not like, okay, here I'm jamming and here I'm filling. No, note for note. This album was my number one practice album back in the day. Nice. This Could was you the play one, it note for note? I don't know if I played it note for note, but yeah, I okay. played it a well, zillion times probably. That wasn't the assignment. I know. <laughs> I right. wasn't, you know, time machine and all that. Yeah, true, true, true. Well, let's move on then to... Uh, it's. it's, it's sort of the ballad of the album. Yeah. Of. I was going to say it's kind of a counter ballad or counterpiece to more than a feeling because it's got some of the similar signature to it. Yeah, this is the other one true. that Beato covers too. Yep. Um, but it's not structured like a ballad. It's No, it's just mellower. Mm -hmm. um, the, the big takeaway for this to me is the guitar outro, that whole opus at the end there. And that's what Rick Beato focuses on too. Um, it's multiple, you know, melodies. You got a sort of a left and right guitar sort of playing off each other, but then there's a, a third one that kind of comes in in the middle, and they all got different tones, and they're playing different parts that answer each other. It's, it gives you the impression of, like, three different guitar players playing leads, like maybe the end of, like, a Hotel California yes, or something yeah. like that. Um, but it's all him. Yeah. Apparently. It's amazing. And what I love about the song is the roadmap of it is verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Then, like, the whole rest of the song is a bunch of different sections that is kind of moving in different areas, mm -hmm. interrupted only once by a chorus, and then it goes to that section that you're talking about. So maybe if we've got time, play a little of, little of each of those sections because they're so cool. In that end section, um, it's really interesting to sort of focus on what's happening with the chords underneath the guitar leads because uh, a couple times the phrase repeats, but then it changes subtly. And what he's doing on the bass, there's times where he just pedals one note all the way through <laughs> and allows the chords to change on top. So just by definition of what he's doing on the bass changes everything else that's going on because... The bass note isn't changing. So there's just a lot of little subtle compositional things happening underneath the guitar leads, too. And I wonder if the things like that, 
we're also at the heart of why he doesn't want to go into a studio and have a producer tell him what to do. Right. right? Change all of his artistic intent and say, no, 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 that doesn't work. Well, right. And he may have tried that on a whim, whereas if he's in there recording Franchi and play the bass, he's not going to think to tell him. He's probably just noodling around saying, oh, yeah. that's kind of cool. Yeah, I like exactly. that. You know, so that, that, that kind of discovery thing wouldn't happen otherwise. Yes. Yep. And then there's something about you. Yeah. I love the way this tune opens, this killer little thing, and then we're into some more wire choir. So this is delicious. Well, there's the, the whole song climaxes at the end with this vocal break, and this is one of the highlights of the whole album for me, this tiny little two-second bit where uh, the song reaches its peak and then goes to its wire choir outro. And so I got to believe if you're a lover of Yacht Rock, you got to love this album too, even though it's not even in the same genre. No, but that, that's what I said at the beginning. All the if same you appreciate reasons. all the same reasons. Yeah, oh, exactly. Well, we're almost done. Uh, it takes us to our final tune of the album, a song called Let Me Take You Home Tonight. Yep, written by Brad Delp, the only one that is. Interestingly, this is also the product of the fake session out in L.A. Yeah, I wonder if he wrote it when he was out there with them. And they recorded it with Boylan, yeah. right? John yep. Boylan. Yep. And what's interesting to me is I feel like even though you got the same mixers and masters, to me this sounds like it's totally written differently, which it was, and totally produced differently. I always thought it sounded completely different than the rest of the album long before I understood even what production or any of this story was. Yeah, and I didn't understand any of wh- yeah. why that was until I, you know, I'm doing my homework on this. Right. right. But it's totally different. In fact, when <laughs> I have a playlist called a, a Burnout Mix, <laughs> every song up until this one is in the burnout mix and I excluded this one for some reason and I don't I know the song but I don't remember this being one of the ones that we were constantly playing back when I was six and you no, were no this was kind of the one that if you were going to skip you'd skip this yeah. one but I do love the song yeah. it's just it's like wow this sounds different yeah. it's like you're in a Bermuda Triangle <laughs> yeah. alright well have we done enough damage for one podcast well we have a lightning round to do I know but we've done enough for this for this alright yes. well let's go into we are the Bermuda Triangle. There could be bad storms. Yes, that's how mentioned. we got here, probably. Oh, look out for lightning. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. This should be interesting. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we haven't conferred on this. I don't know no. where we're taking this. I don't know. Mine does not tie in, so. Okay. Well, I figured I had only to. Only sort of uh, kind of does, but not really. Plot a course back to the Yacht Rock realm. Yeah. We'll eventually get back into the safe harbors. Right. What uh, I guess I'll go first since mine is kind of, sort of related. I okay. can find my notes. So obviously we're way, way off the map here talking about uh, Boston. But we've referenced, or at least I have, another similar artist from the same time period that I also love equally to Yacht Rock. But it's not Yacht Rock. But I tried to sneak on the boat once, and that was 
journey. Ah, yes. So very similar uh, in many ways. I have a tune that I think just might kind of almost fit. Oh, geez. Here we go again. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm ready to make a What Was I Thinking Mach 2 All right, episode. well, bear with me. Listen right. to a little bit of I'll Be All Right Without You by Journey. Please don't ask me. Does it float your boat? <laughs> in the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> not even in the Bermuda Triangle. Okay. Not in King Tut's cave. Not in the Loch Ness. Nowhere. About in a house with a mouse. Uh, I All love right. it, though. I love uh, the, that album. I love the band. Um, it's a great but, tune. It uh, belongs in Off the Map, though. Um, but I figured I'd try to sneak it in here. All right. So what do you got? Well, um, I'm nope, not even sure. Yeah, move on. Okay. Then, not in the uh, house, not in the mouse. Uh, box, box. You're a louse. Anyway, um, how about this one? You ever heard of the BB and Q band? <laughs> <laughs> Don't they play at the uh, bar mitzvah? <laughs> no. The BB and Q band. All right. Well, I had never heard of them either. So uh, I, I imagine this probably came off of the uh, lovely airwaves of Yacht Rock Miami. This sounds like something that may have come from them. Uh, they had an album in 1982 called All Night Long. It's a bit more of a funk album, I guess you might say. Lots of Earth, Wind, and Fire type of influence. Not even not quite as funky as that. Um, the title track is kind of a post-disco funk track, but there's one on there. You're going to love this one because it's got a parenthetical title. No, I, I don't like I, it. I would right. like you to hear this one. It's called Parentheses. I could never say, end parentheses, it's over. <laughs> Why not just call the song? I could never say it's over. I don't know. That's the, my point. Let's listen to a little. Here All we right. go. So you're going to make it up to me now, baby. I say you don't need to. You don't have to explain to me why you listen to others when they told you what to do. Because, baby, I well, now I know why it's called the B, B, and Q band, because that's awesome sauce. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like you said, Earth, Wind, and Fire maybe meets a little bit of Billy Ocean. Yeah. It's probably in that area where you try to figure out where does R&B meet the boat. Right. Well, it's certainly yachtier than Journey. Yeah. I will give yes, you that. All right. So you win this round, okay. my friend. What about the, uh, wait, we've been keeping score all of these years. All right, we'll start over. We did a game show a couple times. We did. Know. All right, so All now right. move on to uh, what do you got? That Buried, Buried Treasure. Treasure. 1979, an album called Sweet Vendetta. Artist name is Adrian Gervitz. Okay. I know. Um, this probably belongs on a yacht disco list, which is why it's not really on the float your boat area, but more of a yacht disco. Interestingly, the strings are done by David Page and Steve Percaro. They arranged the strings. Hmm. Uh, on the album, there's David Hungate on bass and David Shields. I'm guessing David Shields is on this one because he's more of a disco-type player. Drums could be any of these three, Ed Green, Jeff Perkow, or Rick Schlosser. Doesn't say track by track. Fred Tackett on guitar. Uh, but check out this one. This is called The Way I Feel. Listen to the way I feel. 
You know what that actually sounds like to me? Like modern yacht. I know. That's, I thought so too. <laughs> 79, but it sounds like somebody trying to do 1979. It does. Interesting. Yeah. That's good. All right. Well, I have uh, for my buried treasure, uh, when we did our album focus, or not, sorry, not our album focus, but we did our episode on Perfect 10 albums. Mm-hmm. We got some uh, re- viewer mail. Listener Jonathan, which is a different listener Jonathan that we referenced in the past, submitted the band, uh, I'm sorry, the average white band's 1980 album called Shine. Are you familiar with it? Not really. As a perfect 10. Hmm. Uh, so I listened to it and it's awfully close, mm. uh, believe it or not. But guess who produced it? David Foster. Oh, wow. That is not the buried treasure. The okay. buried treasure is what exists on here is apparently the guy in the average white band wrote with Ned Doheny. So the average white band guy was. Hamish Stewart. Yeah, I'm familiar with Hamish Stewart. Yep. Wrote with Ned DeHenny, What You Gonna Do For Me, and Average White Band has a version on it. Check this out. So unfortunately, that is not on Spotify, no. but hit me up and I have the time link uh, to that exact moment, or you could get it on vinyl, but I had no idea that existed. You did, huh? Yeah, because it had something to do with the Ned Doheny sort of, um, there was a compilation of stuff that was put out a couple of years ago, and it had like a quote, new song that they did with Average White Band, so I knew it from uh, there. Yeah. Also covered by Chaka Khan, of course. Yeah. All right, which brings me now to another listener, Jonathan. And this this is the one that we've talked to and about in the past. So thank you for submitting something. Um, it must have been about the time that we had Van Pogelman and we're talking about City Pop. And he said, are you familiar with Paris Match? Are you familiar with Paris no. Match? Me neither. No. Kind of a modern City Pop thing. This is from 2007. It's called Our Favorite Pop. And they do sort of, not all of it's City Pop, but they do kind of City Pop-ish covers of like, Favorite songs of theirs. Okay. One of which is A Woman Needs Love. Ooh. Worth checking out that album from okay. 2007. Yeah. It's also got a cover of Digging Your Scene by the Blow Monkeys. Oh, nice. And Arthur's Theme. Oh, wow. This is really cool. So check that <laughs> okay. out. Thank you to Listener Jonathan for the tip. Oh, nice tip, yeah. Yes. Final off the map, this was an interesting discovery, and I don't even remember how it came up. One of my Spotify mix suggestions was a tune from a 1990 album by Everything But The Girl. name of the album was Language of Life. We, oh, yeah. And I talked about this. Um, belongs in your 80s and the 90s playlist, or whatever you call that 80 list. songs from the 90s? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm listening to that song, and I, it caught my attention enough that I said, well, I'm going to listen to the whole album. So I put the album on, and I'm thinking, wow, this, has, this is really well done. It's very complex. Got to know who that bass player is. Whoa, who's that sax player? I'm starting to think about wanting to know who the personnel is and thinking this holds a, a lot of those connections to Yacht Rock, even though it's not yachty sounding. But it has all of the 
the standards of quality production, sophistication um, that we would apply to Yacht Rock, but done in this sophistipop genre. And then I go to look it up to see who the personnel is, because first of all, I wanted to know who played bass. Right. Uh, John Petitucci. Oh. Uh, some good horn arrangements in there. Well, Jerry Hay did those. Whoa. Sax players include Larry Williams, Kirk Whalum, Michael Brecker, Mark Russo, and Stan Getz. Holy smokes. Lenny Castro on percussion, Michael Landau on guitar, Omar Hakim on drums, Vinny Caliuta on drums, Joe Sample on piano, produced by Tommy LaPuma, recorded by Al Schmidt, Jeez. and mixed by Bill Schnee. Recorded at Ocean Way and Sunset Sound. I mean, this is It's got to be wet- rock. Oh, my gosh. Well, the, the whole album is absolutely stellar. I mean, it starts off with a song called Driving, then Get Back Together, and just one song after another coming at me, and I'm loving it. But we're going to play this one called Letting Love Go. sent that to me and uh, man it's good stuff I can't get enough of it that's so crazy it's funny how now we're discovering not only are there sonic connections between like the sophista pop yeah. stuff there's actual connections like we talked about the Aztec camera album I, I know I actually read on their Wikipedia page where they sort of regretted doing this album why? They kind of go back and say, well, oh, because well, they wanted to be more in the dance thing, the Euro mm. dance thing, I guess. But they did it and they, they said, well, now we, we look back, we can't figure out why we bothered to do that record or something <laughs> like that. Like, really? Yeah. All right. Well, well, at least kind of gets us closer back to the harbor, as we said. So yeah, there you go, listeners. Uh, the first ever Bermuda Triangle episode. Uh, we would like your feedback. So send us some viewer mail, what you thought of this idea, the episode. We're not going to overdo it. It's not going to be every other week or anything, no. but maybe a couple times a year, and we'll spring them on you as a surprise. But fear not. This will always be a Yacht Rock podcast. And how can I prove it to you? Yeah. Would any other podcast end by saying, Ahoy, polloi. No, they would not, so I'm going to say it. Oh, do it. Ahoy, polloi. <laughs> That's a double surprise, because it's like, oh, I thought it was over. No, they're still talking. <laughs>